anyone who is anyone in the DevOps industry or in IT for that matter has read Gene Kim's Phoenix Project or the Unicorn Project. He is a fascinating character who I've personally known for the last three or four years and in this podcast I get the opportunity to sit down and talk about the software revolution and DevOps. Welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast brought to you by Dynatrace. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast. My name is Dave Anderson and I'm joined by a very special guest today, none other than DevOps guru, Gene Kim. Gene, welcome to the podcast. Uh, so delighted to be here and it's so fun to be on so many adventures together this year. So congratulations on all your achievements this year and great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we had you on our uh, Perform event, which is the Dynatrace uh, conference maybe a couple of months ago. We did that virtually and that was a lot of fun. And before you answer, we go way back because yeah. you, I don't even know if you remember, but maybe five or six years ago, you ventured out to Australia and I sort of bailed you up in Australia and we had you at a couple of different events and we have a mutual friend in Paul Muller and, um, and yeah, we got talking in the back of a taxi and all sorts of things way back when. Yeah, I think that was about seven, maybe even eight years ago, oh, <laughs> uh, almost a decade uh, and by the way, it was uh, I, I was so impressed by uh, and dazzled by at the Perform Conference how you, like a maniac, introduced live elements uh, directly into the programming, which is something that uh, uh, you were doing some, some things that I just didn't think was possible in that medium. So it was so fun to compare notes afterwards and see how you pulled off that magic. And uh, it was just uh, awesome to hear just like uh, how you pulled it off and like how much work you put into it because it really showed. Thank you. I'm going to, with your permission, publish that quote to my LinkedIn profile because uh, doing it like a maniac is um, is <laughs> actually what I've always aspired to. But a lot of what we're going to talk about today actually is the culture of DevOps and, um, and how high-performing teams um, act. And actually what we did on the back of the event, we got feedback from you that said, hey, we really liked your perform event and us as a team want to dissect what you did. And I even took the learning of your learning, which is your team went away, dissected our content, then came together to workshop. In itself was a really interesting learning for our team to do the same sort of thing, like go and individually learn, then come back, compare notes, collaborate, talk to the source, and then come back to decide what you're doing. Is this something that you guys always do? Because it seems like a pretty functioning thing to do as a, as a team. Um, I would like to think so, <clears throat> but I mean, I think the more honest answer is that, you know, uh, 2020 was a crazy year and how mm -hmm. many, you know, well, we do two live events and, you know, it really supports my primary area of passion right now, which is studying uh, not just high performing technology organizations, but, you know, uh, specifically not the tech giants, not Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, or Microsoft, but, you know, how large complex organizations are, you know, adopting those same DevOps principles and patterns and using it to, uh, not just survive in the marketplace, but but to win in the marketplace, and so you know uh, we've been we had twelve events over uh, since twenty fourteen, and you know as we all know twenty twenty there were no live events, and so I know that we had we made the decision six weeks before our June conference that it's not going to be live that uh, we have to figure out how to run a, a virtual conference, and you know I, I think both you and I sort of chuckled, but I mean it was true. I went to every live of uh, every uh, virtual event I could, and and they were uniformly mostly pretty bad, yep. <laughs> and so we were just really trying to form our own opinion about like how we should do things. And I was so pleased by the way that we our 
two events went, um, you know, one in June, one in November. Um, and, you know, so I continue to go to online events just to see, uh, you know, what people are doing. And mm-hmm. I got to tell you, seeing what you did at Perform was astonishing. I mean, I think there's some, you know, that feeling when you sort of think you know the space and then you see something, you see someone do something that you just didn't think possible. Right. <laughs> right? And there were a couple of those moments. And uh, what I told uh, you and the team was, uh, I, I can even point to the Slack. In fact, I even posted the yeah. screenshot of our Slack message. It's like, is is Dave live? <laughs> like, it's like, what sort of maniac would do that? Because it's my friend uh, Patrick Dubois, who I collaborated with on the uh, online events, uh, who's also famous for helping, uh, actually coining the word DevOps. Uh, he spent six years in... Um, a startup that was supporting live events for TV. So think like voting system for American Idol, yeah. right? Uh, uh, he said his advice that he gave me was only do live if you absolutely need danger in your life. <laughs> right? So the fact that you voluntarily did it live was, uh, uh, that's the reason why I called you a maniac. But I, I thought the results were just uh, yeah. worth it. I mean, it was just, uh, it paid off. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, that's interesting advice because for me, it was like it had to be live because everyone was doing these pre-recorded, I've done presentations, it's soul-destroying. You just need to be in a moment with people. I think the whole point of events is this feeling of engagement, connection, networking, and we took it some way. And yeah, I appreciate it was manic and, and a little bit crazy and the team didn't like it because it pushed them out of their comfort zone because Australia doesn't have great internet connection. And I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it live. And they're like, you're nuts. And I'm like, what's the worst thing that could happen? If the internet fails, I pull my phone out and I, and I have a fallback. I have a, another plan. So I really appreciate, we really appreciate the feedback. I think this is all part of learning. This is part of evolution. It's about testing as well. You know, there's a lot of DevOps principles that comes back to, to what sort of we did. We had things in place for failure if it was to occur and we did lose power an hour before <laughs> one of the live segments. Um, but, uh, but, but I just felt like this was the new normal. This was the new benchmark that we had to run things. And so without making this podcast about what I did, I'd want to spin it back to you. And you know, you're the author of, or co-author of DevOps books, The Phoenix Project, The Unicorn Project. These are like anyone who's in DevOps has read the books. You've been doing this for 20 years and you've, you sort of almost like when someone mentions DevOps, you're right in the phrase with it. Like, what, how did you do it? Why did you do it? Where are we going and how do you define it? Yeah, so what are the attributes of high performance? It's the ones that can simultaneously deliver uh, the most amount of features, right? On time, on budget, whatever, right? Uh, you know, uh, with consistency. It's the ones that can most reliably deliver great service, you know, con- you know, uptime, availability, reliability, and so forth, and be have a posture of security and compliance, right? <laughs> so the natural question is like, what are they doing differently? You know, how do they get those outcomes? And so, uh, you know, around 2007, I uh, started getting drawn into these group of people uh, that were, you know, thinking about the problem space in a very different way. And uh, you know, where it all sort of came together was attending the 2010 DevOps Days in Mountain View. Um, and you know, that was, you know, so uh, Patrick Dubois ran that conference. Uh, John Alspa, who was there, who, mm-hmm. and, and his colleague Paul Hammond, who gave that famous presentation in 2009 that said we're doing 10 deploys a day every day uh, at Flickr. You know, mm-hmm. Within the first 10 minutes of being at that conference, I mean, I sort of knew, oh my gosh, you know, these are the people that I want to learn from. Mm-hmm. And so you know, over the next uh, you know, five years, uh, you know, made it a point to go to every DevOps conference uh, that I could find and, 
uh, got a chance to interview and uh, learn from so many of these people. And, you know, many of them have resulted in lasting uh, friendships to this day where, you know, uh, we get to work on problems together, <laughs> go on adventures together. So, uh, so I guess that's the how. Um, yeah. And I think for me, my inter- area of interest is really not so much, quote, DevOps in Silicon Valley in the tech giants, but really to see how it's being adopted for where the majority of technology workers are, which is in large complex organizations. And so Capital One has 20,000 plus developers. Yep. Uh, Target has 3,000 plus developers. And, and so there's just note on my mind that when the 18 million developers uh, that exist in those organizations are as productive as if they were at a tech giant, right? That will add trillions of dollars of economic value every year. <laughs> and so uh, as much value as the tech giants have created, you know, which is trillions of dollars, right? That will be dwarfed by the amount that, will happen in in the broader industries yeah so let me touch on that because then you started off by saying your aha moment was studying these unicorns these like amazing companies that are doing great things with software and then eventually everyone works out hang on a second doesn't matter what industry we're in we're all in a software industry do you see a difference because for a user it's like i want an experience that's like apple when i'm doing my insurance they're setting the benchmark so is that a real pressure is there a big difference at the moment or are they closing the gap I think they're definitely closing the gap. That was a cross-population study that mm-hmm. spanned over 36,000 respondents to understand what do high performers look like and you know what are the you know architectural practice, technical practices and cultural norms that you know can predict and create high performance. And so, you know, one of the first questions that you ask is like is DevOps only for the unicorns? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what we found, you know, year over year it was like no, DevOps is for horses too, right? There's no industry that's exempt from DevOps. It doesn't matter about company size. Um, although there's a little footnote there, a little asterisk. Uh, it turns out in 2019 there was one industry that was actually more likely to where you were likely to be a high performer and that was retail. And which when we uh, found the finding, it was like, oh, of course, right? Because the competitive pressures mm. are so high in retail right now, right? Uh, if you're competing against the likes of uh, Amazon and the other e-commerce giants, you have to develop yep. these capabilities. Otherwise, um, you know, you're going to be uh, go the way of, in the U.S., we called it uh, Blockbusters, Barnes & Noble, and uh, <laughs> uh, Borders Bookstore, right? So yeah. how do you avoid that fate? It's one click. It's, so I can't change my insurance company in one click, but I can change where I buy my shoes from in a click, right? Yes, indeed. Right, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, I think really it shows how important DevOps is for every across every industry vertical. So are there differences? Uh, yeah, for sure, right? Um, uh, many of these tech giants were born in the age of software. And, you know, I love these case studies. One of my favorite ones is from Barclays, founded in the year 1635, which predates the invention of paper cash. Uh, uh, but even older is HMRC, the UK HMRC, so uh, the tax collection yep. know them agency. well that was i lived there for yeah. a while <laughs> i had to yes, contact mostly... i had to contact them recently and say i don't need to do tax returns anymore i haven't been there for four years <laughs> yes uh, you know and even they have uh you know they, they did a DevOps transformation around uh the the tax filing process and, and that they were uh-huh. founded in the years 1200 <laughs> right? wow. so the joke is we don't have any code that goes that far back but certainly there's traditions and values that uh, certainly go back centuries wow and so you were talking about the difference between high-performing teams. You said you do research. So forgive my really basic question here. Is this research that you've conducted yourself um, or with your team? And what were your findings? What does it look like? Because I'm always fascinated by like people say, yeah, we're doing DevOps. And you're like, mm. but there's, there's a level of obviously DevOps maturity. How do you benchmark yourself as a team to go, well, we're about here on the spectrum? 
So yeah, this is the uh, state of DevOps research that uh, started off in 2013, and that was in cooperation with uh, Puppet Labs, uh, mm-hmm. as they were named at the time. And then, uh, so this was with uh, Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble, and eventually uh, they started a company called DevOps Research and Assessment, uh, uh, affectionately known as DORA, and the findings actually went into the book uh, Accelerate uh-huh. uh, that I was the, uh, a contributing author on. And that book eventually won the uh, Shingo Research Publication Award, which is <laughs> kind of wow. uh, uh, delightful. Um, and then that was eventually acquired by Google. And so the key findings really are, you know, year over year that high performers exist and they massively outperform their non-high performing peers. So there's four measures we looked at from a technology perspective. Uh, one is deployment frequency. Yep. And so high performers are doing multiple deployments per day yep. and versus monthly or quarterly uh, for non-high performers, uh, code deployment lead times and high performers, they can actually go from code committed into version control through integration, through testing so that customers are saying, thank you. They can do that in one hour or less and, you know, versus a week to a month for lower performers, uh, change failure rates are seven times higher. Um, so in other words, when you do a deployment, these high performers are seven times more likely to succeed without causing a seven outage, a service impairment, a security breach, or a compliance failure. And when something goes wrong, like Murphy's Law does guarantee, yeah. you know, they can fix it in one hour or less. Uh, so that's like three orders of magnitude faster than their peers. So, um, you know, they're more secure. Uh, they're more likely to um, have uh to exceed profitability market share and productivity goals employers are happier so all of that just says yes high performance do exist and there's just so much evidence uh, that shows that certain architectural practices technical practices and cultural norms uh, absolutely do lead to higher performance what sort of percentages are we talking about how many people fall into the we're a higher performing organization, like just to give us an understanding of within the marketplace, what's that percentage? Is it a 20, 30, 50, 70%? Yeah, these days, I mean, so uh, in the earliest days, I think it was like 12 to 15% uh, was in that high performing category. Yep. Uh, over the years, uh, the high performers have, uh, uh, I think the most recent one is like about 30% of which uh, 5% we actually called elite performers. So, I mean, really the answer is, I mean, the, the finding you know, the troubling finding if you're a lower performer is uh you know you're falling behind right yep. the the, the po- of the population um of the respondents that we surveyed of uh, which uh spans anywhere from 3000 to you know 8000 in a given year uh the percentage that are high performers are growing mm-hmm. right so uh it, i guess uh oh, another way to say that is you could get away with being a mediocre performer a couple years ago <laughs> but that's increasingly less and less tenable are you going to have to reset the goalposts as people get better? Um, you know, what's magical about uh, the uh, survey analysis technique we use is we heavily, in the early days, we uh, heavily relied on a technique called clustering. So like, it tells us kind of what the performance profiles are as well as the kind of the, the independent variables. What are the behaviors, norms, and so forth? So... Uh, so the goalposts, I guess you could say, move every year, and that's how we kind of know kind of for these populations, uh, you know, what does the performance look like? And so now we can compare uh, each cluster to each other. Yep. And so just really dumb question here for you. If I'm a leader of a DevOps team and I haven't come across this research before, is this something that I should pick up and try and evaluate my team against and set sort of some some goals against? Yeah, for sure. In fact, I just Google state of DevOps research. Uh, It was conducted from... Uh, 2013 to 2019, um, and uh, uh, you know, I would say 
the, the all the metrics that I've uh, read off, they're usually in the executive summary. Mm-hmm. And I would say the best, you know, when someone asks, am I a high performer or not? There's a very easy way to tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most reliable ways is, you know, you just ask how long would it take me to push an one line code change out or an infrastructure change out to production? Mm-hmm. And those, what is the code deployment lead time? And if it's one or less, you are an elite performer. Uh, if you are a week to a month, uh, we would categorize you as a low performer these days, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, the magic of how these measures go is that everything kind of goes up and down together. Yep. So it makes sense. Now, crystal ball, because um, I love crystal balls, because 2020 pr- just proved to us that you can't predict anything. But um, you've worked in the industry for 20 years. What do you see happening next or what are you seeing happening now? You said there was an aha moment in 2007 or whatever. Like, is there something else coming? Is there something that's changed as a result of the pandemic? Is there predictions? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I don't claim any ability to prognosticate anything. But yeah, I will uh, tell you that something I have a high degree of conviction around is, you know, what, what are the... Uh, what are the obstacles facing the community? And it's because you know, in these conferences, you know, we always ask and we're very deliberate about uh, you know, identifying what these technology leaders, uh, what are their obstacles that they face as a community? Um, you know, every presentation is an experience report where they're saying, hey, here's the industry we compete in. Mm. Here's our organization. Here's where we fit. Or here's where I fit in the org chart. Here's the business problem we set out to solve. Here's what we did. Here's what happened. Here's a problem that still remain. So that problem that still remain, right, can kind of inform uh, what is the gestalt of, of the uh, the obstacles. And I would say in the early days, it was very much dev versus ops, right? We you know we don't have shared goals. <laughs> We're at each other's throats, very much as depicted in the Phoenix Project. Uh, over the years, um, yeah, I think that's changed. It's really um, you know the the obstacles become more external to the dev and ops value stream, right? It really has often more to do with security, compliance, regulators. And these days, I would say it's, it's you know, characterized primarily of, you know, uh, our biggest obstacle is um, to what degree do we have business leadership fully on board where we have a mutually respectful, you know, relationship where we understand that we're codependent not codependent we are mutually dependent upon each other right so mm-hmm. which is the reason why we've asked for um as many presentations as we can where the technology leader and the business leader co-present right and we don't want a business leader who just acknowledges the technology leader we want one who's saying hey all my goals dreams hopes and aspirations uh, were made possible by this technology leader right and mm-hmm. so uh uh you know i think that's kind of like the one prediction i would have is that those or the percentage of organizations that can have that kind of relationship uh, will go up and it's not high enough now. But isn't that crazy? If every company <laughs> is a technology company, how are their business leaders standing there not thinking that the technology was so critical? Like that seems crazy to me. Uh, it, it does seem crazy. And yet, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the sad reality is that often technology is over-dele- over-delegated to uh-huh. quote the technology people yeah. that um, you know to what degree is technology truly integrated into all aspects of strategy and operations um, huh. and you know maybe one proxy measure is you know is there really uh, you know that person at the top who's really can guide uh, that 
digital journey, <laughs> yep. right? Um, and help and make informed decisions, uh, or is this kind of PowerPoint where? Yep. And do you think? I mean, I was reading a book about. So my daughter is ten. I'm reading Ten Ager, and so they reckon that this generation <laughs> is um, matured faster because they have a greater understanding of the internet and apps and everything because they were the first generation that were born with an iPhone. So if we go back to the iPhone of only being 10 years, and I remember the iPhone coming in. So <laughs> is it a transition of generations and generational leadership where as new tech leaders come in, is it those people that come to the forefront that instill this like our business is technology and we mm. need to be talking about technology in order to be successful? Do you see an evolution in that extent? Yeah, for sure. And I just don't think that's fast enough, right? I mean, so mm. I think uh, kind of another, um, yeah, so one of my favorite books is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Dr. Thomas Kuhn. So this was written, I think, 30 years ago. So the term inflection point, uh, you know, it came from that book. So that was popularized by Andy Grove, the you know CEO and of uh, Intel for many years. Um, and, you know, he, you know, basically what that book says is that you know, from afar, from sufficient kind of sufficiently far back in time, whenever there's a revolution, whether it's um, Copernican to Newtonian, Newtonian to Einsteinian, it, it looks like it happened overnight and it looks like it was one person. But mm -hmm. in reality, it was a whole bunch of people kind of uh, uh, proximate to that person. So Einstein and Newton get all the credit, but there were a whole bunch of mathematicians and scientists working on that problem and sort of something clicked, right? You know, the Einstein, the Newton, and then it just looks like the revolution happened. But and, uh, and and part of that revolution is, as Dr. Kuhn says, uh, you have to wait for all the uh, traditional um, worldview people to die right? and uh, allow this next generation to, to flourish. And you know, I think the cynical person may say, in order for the digital revolution to fully take hold, you know, we need to wait for the current yeah, generation of leaders to retire. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is a deeply unsatisfactory answer. Um, and so this is actually a, a learning journey I'm on right now. I recently interviewed Admiral John Richardson. So he was the chief of naval operations for four years. So in the U.S., that's the highest uniformed, uh, highest ranking officer for the U.S. Navy that you know is responsible wow. for the livelihoods of 300,000 so, uh, sailors. Yep. And uh, I, I learned so much in that interview. I mean, one of the aha moments that came to me was that uh, – to create a software competency, you really do need uh, leaders at the highest levels that are uh, deeply familiar with technology, what it can do, what it can't do, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? To inform strategy and uh, decision-making and operations. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, what will happen in the next decade is, you know, we've got to figure out as organizations, like how, how do you truly, you know, bring in, what is the role of technology leadership, you know, uh, you know, in the modern organization? And and the tech giants probably have it easier because they were born that way. Did you get into artificial intelligence out of interest with um with this admiral? Because that's a very interesting topic on autonomous weapons and these sort of things. They probably didn't want to share it, but um, it came up once or twice, especially in terms of like um, how uh. I mean, certainly kind of how, how do you build systems that mm -hmm. best achieve the mission, whether it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the display for the sonar operator um, to just the role of uh, technology in general. I mean, if, uh, let me see if I can recite this. It used to be the case that 
that a ship when it was launched was the most capable the instant it was launched. And then for every year that goes by until it's decommissioned, it gets less and less capable. But uh, he was saying with the advent of software, right, it's actually very possible <laughs> that the ship actually gets more capable because of specific software changes that are made. And, and so that's like, oh boy, what? talk about a big idea. Yeah, so like <laughs> remote software updates to submarines and things like that. Yeah. In fact, a mentor of mine, Dr. Tom Longstaff, who is the CTO at the Software Engineering Institute, he was describing briefing uh, a general that uh, it should be, we should make it a goal that uh, we can upgrade the firmware in a missile system, dot, 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 while it's in flight. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> Which is... Uh, That's mind-blowing because uh, like, last night my car wanted to do a software update and it said make sure it's in park. And you can't yeah. use it, and you can't use it for twenty minutes. And I go, and I'm not like thirty thousand feet under the sea or something. I'm not <laughs> like the challenge of actually doing that to a submarine and the protocols around because they got so many different vessels and things like that. It's actually mind blowing. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, people who presented at DevOps Enterprise a couple of years ago, his name is Chris Hill. He was at Jaguar Land Rover, and so he developed a lot of the um, I think they call it the infotainment system, but that yep. actually is a gross understatement of what it is. It's basically all the displays, right? Yeah. Uh, so info, like you know, speed, and and then the radio display and so forth. Anyway, like uh, he was describing how one of the things that they were experimenting with is uh, being able to have like an A side and a B side so they can upgrade the kernel on the A side and flip from the B side to the A side when it completes so that you can uh, actually potentially upgrade while driving. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want that. Well, <laughs> I, I want the idea for it to know that it's going to fail and it could flip to the other one whilst it was driving, but I would want to be sure that it was being tested. Cause yeah. Because it, it's, uh, yes, to your point, it's running everything. It's not just, people look at it and go, oh yeah, it's my maps and stuff, but it's also connected to brakes and now like the systems like you know the cars can drive themselves so it's pretty we go into a whole rabbit hole i don't want to do this (laughs) hey gene how many books do you read a year a lot less than i used to i'm um i buy many books but uh complete far fewer um i would say uh how many books do i complete in a given month uh probably about I start a lot of books, and I, I'm very quick to uh, bail out if it's not catching my interest or yeah. um, if, if it's not deeply resonating with me. Yeah. I would say I probably complete maybe four or five books on average in a given month. Uh, and I might, for everyone yeah. that I finish, <laughs> I probably uh, start three or four times as many. I'm a technology leader today. What book or what two books should I read aside from the ones you've written? Yeah, you know, uh, I would lead with Team of Teams by uh, General Stanley McChrystal and also uh, Chris Fussell and Dave Silverman. And it was so cool to be able to interview uh, Dave Silverman. So he was a lieutenant commander in the Navy SEALs. Um, Chris Fussell was uh, General, Mc- General Stanley McChrystal's uh, uh, chief of staff or his aide-de-camp, uh, w- one of those roles. And it was just, I got to interview uh, Dave and uh, he actually presented DevOps Enterprise twice last year. It was so interesting um, because you know, I think one is for just a variety of reasons. I think the stories and problems presented in that book will deeply resonate with anyone in the DevOps community because you know our version of Dev versus QA versus Ops versus Security. Uh, theirs was uh, U.S. Army Rangers versus you know the intelligence analysts versus uh, uh, the Navy SEALs, and 
you know, their you know their goal was to dismantle the terrorist um, Al Qaeda in Iraq network in 2004, and they you know uh, they were smaller, <laughs> but they were far nimbler, and they found that they simply could not dismantle the terrorist network, and it was because they couldn't act fast enough. Uh, decisions routinely having to go you know eight levels up in the org chart <laughs> and, and uh eight levels down and, and repeat over and over again uh so it was basically the waterfall process uh for you know trying to uh find and capture these uh terrorist leaders and and what they put into place or that was the before picture the the after picture is really uh putting you know these people from different military branches and the intelligence agencies into mission-oriented teams where they worked together with a shared objective <laughs> and they pushed decision making down to the edges uh, they connected uh, middle level leaders across this vast enterprise and uh, it, it unlocked all these capabilities where you know suddenly they could uh, act and react faster than uh, the adversaries and, and it's just I think there's so many lessons in that book that will that translate um, you know directly to DevOps and actually reveal some surprising insights that you know, I have found very um, uh, that led to some serious like aha moments. In fact, if I can just share one of them, please. I think for me, one of the things that I've been pondering with uh, my mentor, Dr. Steven Spear, who uh, has—I mean, he's most famous for writing this the most widely downloaded Harvard Business Review article of all time called "Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System." So that was back in oh, yeah. 1999. And uh, that was actually based on his doctoral dissertation at the Harvard Business School, uh, where in service of that, he worked on the Toyota plant floor of a tier one supplier <laughs> for six months. And so, just, uh, and so, yeah, he's taking all those learnings, applied them to healthcare, engine design at Pratt & Whitney, semiconductor fab manufacturing. Um, and, and I think one of our uh, conclusions or conjectures is that you can almost predict whether an organization is high-performing or not just by looking at the communication paths in the organization and the intensity and frequency of the communication. Is it primarily up and down the organization, um, you know, where everything requires a vast escalation eight levels up, uh, just and then eight levels down to get two engineers to talk to each other? Or is the majority of the communication going across the organization? In other words, uh, most of it happens within the team. Uh, teams can talk to each other. Uh, because there are sanctioned ways for them to do that. And when escalations happen, uh, they escalate one level, not eight. And I think the reason why that's so important, because that represents to what degree can organizations do integrated problem solving. Um, and so if you're going up and down the organization all the time, that's a very slow structure to communicate. It takes a long time <laughs> to schedule these meetings. You lose a lot of information. And what Team of Teams showed is that you cannot, um, there are a set of, uh, problems where if you take that weeks to make a decision, you know, you've lost the opportunity. Yep. Uh, what you want is that fast path between teams, within teams and between teams uh, that allow for fast integrated problem solving where you get far better outcomes. Yeah, fast decision making with fast communication between and trust within the team members as well. Exactly. Trust is what allows uh, signals to propagate through the system. Uh, so do you have a system where no one trusts each other and uh, bad news or important news is suppressed or extinguished? Or do you have a high trust environment uh, where you know even weak failure signals can be amplified and received, right? And be used to uh, inform important decisions. I've been in organizations before. I've seen 
and I've studied when I did an MBA, I've done all this stuff. No one ever said that the DevOps teams were going to be the high performing, highest functioning teams. It's almost like, and the, I might be completely crazy in saying this, but I go like, it's almost like you think of an elite sports team. And that's the analogy of what you're trying to bring within an organization. You have the legal team, the marketing team, accounting and finance and sales and all these people. No one seems to be as focused on speed, trust, confidence, mm. communication more than the technology teams. It seems to mm -hmm. be these software developers and these software teams, these DevOps teams that have become hyper-focused on how do we become a higher performing team and it's that that permeates out to the rest of the organization. It's f absolutely fascinating. Have you considered that? that yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that is uh, one of the things that uh, Dr. Spear and I were pondering, which is why is it that so many of these patterns... Uh, so um, kind of to, to massively simplify it in my head, mm. I kind of view it as you have you know, a set of cohesive beliefs, uh, maybe f starting with... Frederick Winslow Taylor, who you know created the um, uh, scientific management right 120 years ago, mm -hmm. and that led to things like waterfall um, projects, uh, you know, rigid command and control, um, you know, running organization by Gantt charts, right? And so that that kind of had its time, and then you have this other sort of cohesive beliefs and practices uh, that led to things like psychological safety and agile and DevOps and, um, you know, high trust management. And that's led to amazing things like harnessing the atom and uh, sending, you know, a man to the moon and safely returning back to earth and, uh, you know, DevOps and so forth. And so the, to rephrase your question, like, why is it that technology seems to be the frontier for that of mm -hmm. which it is not the sole example, right? Uh, Apollo, I think we find the same norms uh, as well as uh, the Manhattan Project. And I think the reason why it's universally felt in technology is that it it is a category of knowledge work uh, and requires a creative, um, uh, creative and integrated problem solving mm. where trust and collegial, collegiality and... Um, Integrated problem solving is uh, it's a prerequisite, <laughs> right? You, you can't you can't solve tough challenges just within your silo. So that is exactly what we found in team teams. So I think there's something about kind of these uh, R and D type of efforts um, that make it even more important for these kind of conditions that that we're talking about. So maybe just to yeah. add one more point, yeah, I, I think the team teams story it really talks about the army rangers were the best at what they did right and the navy seals were the best at what they did but they couldn't work together <laughs> right and so really that story is about how do you integrate uh those functional specialties combined with intelligence agencies to you know uh to achieve the mission just like in dev and ops right how you take the skills of dev qa ops and security and use that to compete and win in the marketplace yeah, fascinating. Thank you for sharing. It's really good detail and what you've gone into there because it's something that I'm picking up on as I deal with. I'm a marketer that happens to be working with technology teams and I'm <laughs> constantly learning about these people. And they're, a lot of people that I interview, they are problem solvers with inquisitive minds that are then just leveraging technology. But 
They have to work with such vast different people to solve different problems. They're fascinating. It's been really interesting study. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with us because there's a lot in here as always to dissect. And the original reason for having you on was because you share so much great stuff. It's often hard to extract it all. I often struggle, like I had to rewatch the perform presentation to go, right, this book, this book, this book, this principle, this principle. So it's nice to slow down slightly. Before we finish, I wanted to ask you just a couple of things um, to finish up with. Uh, the first one is uh, a couple of fast questions. Um, your biggest inspiration? Oh, biggest inspiration. Uh, reading a book that I read, I think around 1999, uh, called The Goal by Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt. So it's a novel about mm -hmm. a plant manager who has to fix his cost and due date issues in 90 days, otherwise they shut the plant down, right? <laughs> so uh, that book is obviously the inspiration of the Phoenix Project. Uh, it's another damn book I've got to read. That's about six books now. <laughs> um, and uh, three dinner party guests, dead or alive? Oh, what a great question. Uh, ideal <laughs> dinner party? You know, I would love to... I don't know who these people would be, yeah. but as people involved in the mobilization of vaccination clinics, I got to visit uh, the Portland Convention Center where they're vaccinating 8,000 people per day, up from 250. And I just would love to uh, have a dinner party of people involved in mobilizing against the most important societal problem, right? We're in yeah. a race to vaccinate everybody on the planet. And I think there will be profound lessons learned in terms of how do we take these uh, healthcare delivery systems that are often known to be very rigid and, and demonstrate this incredible adaptation that uh, has been evidenced you know, uh, as we ramp up the vaccination capacity. It is just incredible to see. That says a lot about you that you didn't actually come up with a person, but it's your, almost like your research, your inquisitive mind that makes you go, I want to talk to someone in this field. That would be interesting. <laughs> that says a lot. Um, most of the world is in a race to get vaccinated. Australia is losing it at the moment. We're doing a very good job in, in preventing the virus from spreading in Australia, but a very bad job at the uh, vaccination. Um, the last question I have for you, you have to finish this sentence. <laughs> AI will... Dot, 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 dot. AI will change the lives in ways we can probably not even comprehend or predict. <laughs> and I say that with no real notion of uh, what that could be. <laughs> so uh, without a doubt, uh, is the it next frontier. positive or is it negative? Uh, I, think, I think it is our incumbent upon us as a society to figure out how to make it positive in the long term. <laughs> so not to say that uh, we won't have our bumps. And by the way, I think what's often overlooked in the uh, AI game, especially in the data game, is that that fundamentally is a software endeavor. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I uh, really was interested in writing about in the Unicorn Project was uh, how many times uh, people are embarking on these massive data initiatives uh, without applying you know, the best known software principles and because they don't view it as a software effort, <laughs> which is a little scary. Why? Because I think it is often viewed as a statistical exercise, um, and which, which it is, and it's uh, viewed as an activity. But fundamentally, uh, you know, every one of the disciplines that we developed over the last 50 years around how to uh, uh, build software well must be employed in the service of these data programs. And it must be reproducible. <laughs> it must uh, be under some sort of version control. Um, uh, there has to be some sort of automated testing. Uh, there's got to be some sort of mechanistic way to uh, change these models in production. So um, I, I think uh, as an industry, we're still uh, that realization maybe has not totally hit uh, 
in the uh, the way it is practiced. Can we enforce it? What can we do about it? Ah, I, I think uh, this will naturally happen as uh, uh, some of these you know multi million, multi tens of million dollars of initiatives fail, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, we'll get people who uh, understand software better, and uh, I think they'll have a far better uh, success rate in terms of achieving goals. Mm, interesting. So, thank you so much for being part of this. I want to leave one question. What advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? Oh, um, the advice I would give to my 16-year-old self is um, it may not sound interesting, but uh, the advice I would give to my, uh, you know, even my 25-year-old self is uh, do whatever you can to do uh, internship uh, as an auditor, <laughs> maybe a multi, you know, a one-year stint as an internal auditor. And the reason is that uh, it's one of the few places where you get to see the internal end-to-end business processes. Um, you know, often as a technologist, uh, you know, we're building things and we may ne- never see the customer. Uh, we may never see the actual business goals. And, uh, and we may never see pieces of the organization kind of outside of what's adjacent to us. Whereas an internal auditor will often see the entire organization. They'll see the, um, you know, the four major business cycles, whether it's, uh, uh, oh boy, I used to know these, order to cash, procure to pay, hire to retire. Uh, there's one other one. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think just uh, having that holistic view of how organizations work and what those major cycles are. I mean, in general, it's always to know what the big picture is. And getting that early, I think, is uh, never a bad thing. That's awesome. It's really fascinating. So a lot of uh, I've been talking to a lot of people in AI and algorithms and software and some really interesting TED Talk presenters, and they all of them have talked about the importance of end to end, like simplify <laughs> it down and really understand what are we in business for and how do we go from the product to the outcome and very interesting because then they're talking about how they're applying AI to these types of things as well. And then what are the outcomes of the AI? And the AI is only grabbing what it is that you can know. You have to know what you're grabbing before <laughs> you grab it. Gene, uh, you mentioned numerous times um, the importance of events, networking, engaging, these sort of things. I do hope we get back to the physical elements of the event sometime soon so we can get inspired once again because I do suffer from virtual event syndrome where we get distracted by too many other things thank you for being on the podcast is there anything you wanted to share with us to finish is there anything we should look out for um yeah in fact speaking of events uh we are running uh two virtual devops enterprises uh, this year so one is a europe uh, conference that's coming up in mid-may and then the um U.S. conference, which will be likely in October. So awesome. uh, if you are interested in uh, hearing technology leaders and what they're achieving in large, complex organizations, uh, we're hoping to put on the best programming, uh, even better than what we did last year. Yeah, we'll share a link to that. I presume you're going to be live. Um, <laughs> that's right. Maybe not quite as brave as you. We're still kind of uh, trying to decide exactly uh, where we're going to employ, employ live, but it was uh, inspiring and mind expanding to see what you achieved at Perform. So, congratulations again on that. Oh, thank you. Um, just say yes to them and just make them do it, Gene. That's my advice. And then let them figure out the rest <laughs> later. Thank you for very, very much for being on the podcast. We'll share a lot of those links, the books, a lot of your knowledge. We really appreciate it. I look forward to networking with you again. Stay safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Catch you soon, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. 